Thank you, ladies. Good morning again. I've been out in the woods for the last two weeks. It's been very good. I tell you what, being out in fresh air, no internet, that kind of stuff, it, it kind of brought to the fore the, the reality of how much busyness and stress affect me. I think I, I deeply underestimate how much that stuff affects me. So it's really good to be back with you, have kind of a fresh perspective, and I'm, I'm thankful to be here today. It's good to have all you guests, too. I remember sitting in those same pews when I first entered Multnomah back in 2005, and uh, we did chapels up here and that kind of thing. So I'd like to pray with you guys since I've been out for a little bit, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, as, as I, I sat out there on the beaches and in the woods, I could, like, you know I continued to come back to this idea that uh, grace keeps us together. And I think about being here with this body of believers, this church that you've brought me into and you've brought all of us into, which is your church. And I think about how your great gift, your grace, your charis, what you give to us is what keeps us together. And when we extend grace toward one another, we stay together. Thank you for binding our hearts and our souls together with yours and with one another. Thank you for being a giving God who loves us. It's very difficult for me in the context of this world's chaos to remember that you love me. It's even more difficult to live each decision and movement of my life in that mindset. Help us, God, give us mercy. Bring us closer to you. Help us to see this morning uh, the profound truth of your word, Jesus, as you brought it to these Sadducees. Help us to learn and become even closer to you. Thank you. Amen. Okay. Colleen, could you pop that slide up? All right. What is this a picture of? See a guy. Both of them have a lion. What sort of pops to your head right off the bat? There's a real prominent New Testament scholar who I love to read, and he talks about having a picture of St. Jerome in his office. The legend associated with St. Jerome is that he had a lion one time he engaged with that had a thorn in its foot, and Jerome pulled the thorn out of its foot, and the lion sort of became Jerome's guardian pet, if you will. And these pictures, uh, this is two pictures of St. Jerome, uh, but many of them, you'd be hard-pressed to find a picture or an icon that doesn't have a lion laying next to him. Why do I put this up? Well, if you don't know that, and maybe you are a person who's been steeped in the Bible, you know Bible stories, you kind of look at that, you say, old dude, kind of looks like a Bible picture, there's a lion, looks like a, this got to be Daniel, you know, it must be a picture of Daniel. I think many of us just sort of assume, oh, it's Daniel in the lion's den. Why do we think that? Well, it's because of how our minds have been conditioned. It's images and thoughts and things that we have sort of been trained to see and understand. And it's a lack of knowledge about St. Jerome and what I just told you about the pictures and the legend and his lion. You can take the slide down now. Why do I bring that up? I think that even though those pictures would reflect an 
a, um, an objective truth about St. Jerome and his lion and so forth, we come to those pictures with what we understand and know already, and, and very likely many of us in this room who didn't know that was Jerome invested a meaning into that picture based on what we already knew. We looked at it and we said, I think that probably looks like Daniel and the lion. The lion cues me in. We're in the middle of Mark chapter 12 this morning. And this text that we'll read is notorious uh, for misreading. It's going to be Jesus engaging with the Sadducees on the issue of marriage and resurrection. And if we come to the table with our own modern ideas, we might see a picture in this text that the Bible is not painting. That makes sense. So we have to be really careful. Here's what I mean. In Western Christianity, and this is where you and I have grown up, it's where we're living right now, in, in kind of a modern Western Christianity, we have been brought up uh, believing that the ultimate point of Christianity is to go to heaven when you die, okay? It's just the absolute ultimate end, the ultimate goal is getting into heaven. I think Roman Catholicism is the same. Roman Catholicism would say, when you die, then you go to purgatory and then heaven. So there's this middle place. But still, it's the idea that your ultimate goal is to die and then go to heaven. When you die, you go to heaven. Heaven then is the place that you go. When you die, it's a place where God and the angels reside. And what we conceive of this heavenly realm to be like has been deeply influenced by Dante's writings. We've got Reformation, medieval era, and then, and then uh, Renaissance era paintings and poetry from Michelangelo and Dante and so forth have all sort of helped us to form what we understand is coming next and what happens when you die. Countless hymns and poems and prayers, sermons, They've kind of become a staple diet for us as we think about the afterlife and what the ultimate goal of Christianity is. They have, they have suggested this is it. You die, you go to heaven. Then throw on sort of popular folk religion and you have this concept of when you die and go to heaven, you become an angel. Yes? Uh, you think about Elmer Fudd in his uh, Looney Tunes where he's always shooting a rabbit and blowing people away. Every time he blows a little cartoon animal away, what happens? A little angel floats up into heaven and there's the clouds and the halo and this is what happens when you die. You die and go to heaven. So with that popular sort of rendition of what's going on and what this is all about, we can come into the Bible and we read into the word resurrection we read it and we say, okay, that means dying and going to heaven and becoming an angel. And if we, if we come to the text with that and read this, what's really dicey with this text is that Jesus seems to affirm that exact way of thinking. It's like when you read it, it's like, hmm, he is affirming what I already know, which is you die and become an angel and go to heaven. So how can we avoid that mistake? Well, similar to this painting. If I can sit down with you and say, look, here's the context that that painting came from. 
the painter was painting Jerome and his pet lion. It wasn't Daniel who was threatened by a lion with an angel protecting him. It was Jerome with a lion that was protecting I can explain it to you, right? So I want to start this morning, before we get to the text, explaining a little bit of the ancient context that this is coming from, this, that this next passage in Mark 12 is coming from. Uh, we want to get into the first century world and sort of see who these guys are that Jesus is dealing with, okay? So one thing right off the bat, and I've, I've worked a lot in this realm studying and thinking about this era and this world that Jesus is in. And one thing I've learned is that you cannot say the Jews believed in this or that and have it be meaningful. <laughs> it's kind of like saying um, Americans are this way. You might be able to make a generalization, but it'd have to be very general because most of us would say, which Americans are that way? The Jews were the same way. You had major groupings of Jewish people that believed radically different things and practiced the religion in radically different ways. The Essene community, they, many of them, they, they were scattered all over the place. Some of them were really extreme and lived in the desert and obeyed these rigorous, strict rules. They were kind of a revolutionary force. We think John the Baptist might have come from that group. They were really, really, really focused on fate, providence, God's um, predetermined life. Then you have the Pharisees. That's a group that's set apart. They believed in predestination plus free will, kind of working together as one. They were of a middle class and lower classes, lower classes of the priesthood. The Pharisees were a set-apart people, teaching, rabbis, that kind of thing. And they had a system of beliefs that they had that were very different uh, in, in many ways than, say, the Sadducees. Here's the big difference. Now, we've seen a lot of Pharisee action in the Gospel of Mark so far. For those of you just joining, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for almost a full year right now. So we've seen the Pharisees over and over. And these guys, these guys were really interested in the Bible and following it, but bringing it into their actual world. So they were willing to say, okay, the Bible said this to a nomadic people in the desert long ago. What does that mean for us in modern Jerusalem today in the first century? And what that meant was they developed new traditions and laws and rules that they believed helped to live out the principles of the Bible. But the Sadducees, they said, we're Bible-only people. The Pharisees have all these little add-on things that they do. They think it's cool, it's progressive, whatever. But the Sadducees says, we believe in the Bible, not in your fancy interpretations. And for them, the Bible was Torah, which they, said, which they understood as the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That's God's word, that's what we believe, and anything else is just fluff. And they were super intense. And the Sadducees were, were particularly interesting because they always held the high priesthood. So the Sadducees traced their lineage all the way back to the days of King Solomon when Solomon's temple was in, in play. And he, King Solomon, appointed a high priest named Zadok. And from Zadok's time onward, the high priesthood always said, I am in the family. I can trace my ancestry back to Zadok. Hence the term Zedekite, which is the same term in Hebrew for the word Sadducee. 
okay? And the Sadducees, by Jesus' day, were the political, religious, ultra-elite. They had land, they had wealth, they had power, political power. They ran the high priesthood of the temple, which meant they were the kings. They were on top. They were not very well liked. <laughs> we read in Josephus, the ancient historian, that the Sadducees were kind of jerks, even to each other. They were always fighting and battling. Josephus says they treated each other in barbarous ways. So they were real proud of themselves and their Bible that they knew to a T. We know it, we follow it, and everybody else isn't quite as good. And they didn't like the Pharisees because the Pharisees were adding too much on. So they're very conservative, both politically and religiously. They loved the Bible, but they loved it in a different way than the Pharisees did. And one of the most heated debates that they had going in their time was about resurrection. Why? Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you don't have a whole lot of discussion about the resurrection. You can pull a text that's pretty explicit out of Isaiah 26. You can pull one out of Daniel 12. You can see some clear description of a, of a resurrection life, and that's really it. There's three Psalms and then maybe Job 19 where there's this sort of uh, ambiguous allusion to being resurrected. But notice all those books are not the first five books. So the Pharisees looked at those and they said, you know, resurrection? I think this is probably legitimate. And much of their writing, right before Jesus' time, we call it Second Temple Judaism, they're writing about the apocalypses and so forth, First and Second Enoch and all these books, there's lots of description in there about a resurrection happening, which signals to us the Pharisees and the Jewish populace in many ways had adopted the belief that resurrection is going to happen because God's going to make it happen. But the Sadducees are sitting over here saying, <laughs> uh -uh, you're reading weirdo Bible stuff. You're believing in weirdo progressive interpretations and making up as much as we would love the idea of being resurrected. That's just crazy. They would have said cray-cray. That's how they talk. So you had this scenario where you, where you have people who really believe that they're right, and now comes Jesus, and Jesus has been kind of blowing up their spot for a while. They believed that Sheol, or the underworld, was the final resting place for all people. They, with the writers of the Old Testament, that's why you don't see resurrection in the Old Testament hardly at all. They just didn't believe it. You die, you go to the underworld. That's the final resting place. Any sense of ongoing life was related to the legacy you leave. It's kind of like when we say, I live on in the memories of others. He still lives in my memory or she still lives in my memory, that kind of thing. That would be the, the extent of what they thought about living on. There was no sense of personal bodily survival. Does that make sense? Okay, so they love to debate this with the Pharisees because they felt if I can draw people into this discussion about resurrection, I can show them that they don't really believe the Bible, and I do. So they, they were constantly debating people about this issue all the time. There's our background, okay? So with that in mind, let's go to Mark 12. We'll pick it up in verse 18. 
And we're going to read it in two segments. The first segment is, is their question to Jesus, and then we'll read his response. So verse 18 of Mark chapter 12, I'm reading from the NIV this morning. Here it is. Then the Sadducees, and notice how Mark gives us a little editorial comment. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and then raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. Pretty rough pattern here. Same with the third. And then, in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. And at the resurrection, you know, in your crazy resurrection, Jesus, when that happens, whose wife is she going to be? Since there were seven who were married to her. Okay. So they've set up a hypothetical. It's kind of far-fetched, quite frankly, if you just kind of biologically think about how this would be possible, but there it is. If we're going to paraphrase what they're saying, we want to try to kind of get at what are these guys really doing here. I think you could say it like this. So, Jesus, if what you believe is true, then the afterlife will be utter moral chaos. (laughs) Okay? And since God does not create moral chaos, then God does not do resurrection stuff. It's just not going to happen, obviously. Well, what are they talking about with all this marriage and seven brothers and yada, yada, yada? They're talking about what we have termed leveret marriage. It looks a little bit like it might be talking about Levites. So it starts with that, that front end of the word. It's not about Levite marriage. Leveret comes from our Latin word levir, which means husband's brother. So it's husband's brother marriage. And what the law said, let's read it in Deuteronomy 25. This is what they're referring to when they say, Moses told us this. In Deuteronomy 25 verse 5, here's the rule. Notice it's a rule, not a suggestion or an allowance. He says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son that she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So if I had a brother, I don't, but if I did, Allie, my wife here, and, and we married, and, and she was not able to produce a, a baby boy, and then I passed away, then under this law, my brother would have to swoop in, and he would be with my wife, and she would, if she birthed a son, that son would actually be my son in the eyes of the law. And therefore, he, that son, would be able to inherit everything in my family line. So what is leveret marriage all about? It's about helping to mitigate against the damage that death brings 
and it's about helping to protect and further the family possessions and property and name, okay? Now, their whole idea is if that were to happen, but then, and you, you read it, then subsequently the next brother was unable to help her produce a male son and so forth, what happens next? How would that possibly work out in a resurrection world? Notice, his job is to fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. This is one of the first places we start to see a breakdown in the way that the Sadducees are reading their Bible. It doesn't say that he is to take on the role of her first husband. He's not to marry her in that sense. Ben Witherington, uh, he's a New Testament scholar, uh, he, he, as, after having looked into this for a very long time, he, he sees, and we can see, through the law in the Bible, there were under no obligation to sort of take that wife into their clan and then, and then treat her as he would treat his normal wife, the brother. So they didn't see this as a law that produced polygamy. Does that make sense? So because a brother fulfills his duty to his dead brother doesn't mean that he now has a bunch of extra wives. Which means, as Witherington says, in other words, leveret marriage was never seen as on par with real marriage, nor was it seen as resulting in a polygamous situation. So the way that marriage was understood and practiced was very, very different than the way we understand and practice it, wasn't it? I mean, the whole thing is just kind of odd to me. Still, in the Bible, this is a non-negotiable. So I mentioned this before, the scriptures were not allowing for this kind of practice to happen. They were commanding. It was an obligation of the surviving brother to help the widow bear a son, okay? So is Jesus going to come in and say, I disagree with the Bible itself by upholding this ridiculous pharisaic tradition or interpretation about resurrection? That's the question, isn't it? If this is how things work now, then it must be the way they work in the future. Did you see that that is kind of the first little glimpse we get to see into the Pharisees' error, or sorry, the Sadducees' error? They're saying, hey, look, here's how marriage and sex and family, here's how it works now. Obviously, it's going to be that same exact way in the future, and that can't work in the future because of the way it works now. They had made the mistake of creating heaven, if you will, in the image of their own earth. The way they understood right and wrong and what things are and so forth, they figured it's all just going to be the exact same later on. If this is how it works now, it must be the same way later. And notice how the Sadducees' world was set up. In their world, and it's not just the Sadducees now, it's just the whole culture. In their world, women were living beings that men own. And like a, like a possession, if you will, an advanced sort of livestock. I don't want to push this too hard. I don't want to make the idea that that women were just brutalized and mistreated constantly all the time in some sort of horrendous scenario. And yet, 
There's no way to argue outside of women were treated as possessions that you own and trade and give and buy, all that stuff, okay? So in their mindset, women are a functional possession and they're crucial for securing the family line and keeping your name protected and furthering it. Men are the rightful rulers. They're the authority always over the women. And they are therefore the only actor in marrying. A woman never kind of thought, hmm, who will I marry? They just wondered, who will I be given to in marriage? And the men, when, if there was an act of marrying happening, it was the men who acted, okay? So in a world that continues to operate in the most familiar way to them, resurrection just can't work. Who will own the woman? Right? If there's seven different brothers who have followed God's law to the T, then who owns her? And whose family is she going to further? Whose possessions and, and land and ownership will she help to secure? Well, it can't be all seven of them. But that doesn't work. So they're like, this, this isn't going to happen. I think we all do this at times. We create heaven according to what we know best, our image or our understanding and experience of earth. Native Americans here in our land, they used to imagine heaven as a hap they're natural born hunters, right? And they need to hunt to survive. Heaven was a land where it was a happy hunting grounds, plentiful with deer and wildlife to hunt. Uh, the Vikings were a, a natural-born warring people. They loved to fight. So their heaven is Valhalla. It's a, it's a place of endless war where people are raised up. They fight and kill each other all day long, and then all the people who died are raised up afterward, and then they can fight again the next day. They loved fighting and chopping each other, and there were banquets, and they drank wine out of the skulls of their oppressors. That was their heaven, Okay. You think of Muslims growing up in a place where luxury was almost unknown. Their heaven becomes a place of endless sensual pleasures. Jews, as they started to develop an idea of heaven, the Jews hate oceans. They don't like the seas at all. So their heaven is a place with no more oceans. Okay. We kind of do this, and some of it is very beautiful. We hear language, there will be no more tears. We think of paradise. We think of a pain-free world. That's all legitimate, but we have to be careful. Here's something that can sober us and remind us. That's from Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. He says this, What no eye has seen, nor heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. We get to have glimpses into the kingdom, gleanings, flickering glories, that we can see of the life of resurrection in the age to come. But how life works, including sex and marriage and procreation, in the full presence of God's infinite love, in a place where there's no more threat of death whatsoever, what we do know is that it's not going to be the same as it is now. Jesus will say that much in his answer. It is going to change. So if you're saying, ah, I don't think the resurrection is legitimate because of what I know, things, how they work now, that's kind of what Jesus is going to speak to here. The values and the systems and the way things are supposed to be will be renewed and expanded in very unexpected ways. 
in heaven. And I would encourage you to never believe that you certainly understand how heaven will obviously be. Instead, embrace that mystery from the apostle and know your heart has not yet conceived it. Your mind has not yet seen it. We do have glimpses. We do have these gleanings and glories. But what he's prepared for those who love him is pretty amazing. So in sum, here we are. The Sadducees are challenging Jesus with two basic questions. Can resurrection even happen at all? And then if it does, what's that life going to be like? What is Jesus going to say to them? Let's pick it back up in Mark 12, verse 24. Jesus replies. I like it when Jesus replies. It's always good. Jesus replies, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? <laughs> Isn't that good? He's like, aren't you wrong though? <laughs> this is great. Aren't you wrong though because you don't know the Bible or the power of God? Could you imagine what they're thinking? I bet they're just irritated. Verse 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Notice, pause for a second, he says, like the angels who are in heaven. He does not say they will be in heaven like the angels. Verse 26, now, about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses? In the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. You are in error. Isn't that great? Notice how Mark sets his, his statement up. Are you not in error? You are in error, you know. And here's your error. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Ooh. That one hits me. It makes us all wonder what errors we have assumed because we don't know the scriptures and we don't know the power of God. I, for example, I have suffered. Here's a small token based on this text. I have suffered greatly from the notion that in heaven I'm going to lose my wife, Allie. But I only thought that because I didn't know the scriptures. I just sort of appropriated an understanding of what heaven will be like. I read it into the text, and I figured the Bible tells me that I may not even be able to know her because I'll be sort of a spirit-floating, singing orb being, you know? I think I've told you before, I was, for a long part of my childhood, terrified of going to heaven. I mean, I was more terrified of hell, but just a little bit more. Heaven, I just didn't want to sing that many hymns. I like singing hymns, but I just, it was weird. The Sadducees had a Bible college level education in the scriptures, okay? They could have passed a Kutz test or a Josberger test. Kutz's Isaiah test was phenomenally difficult. They could have passed it, better than I did, that's for sure. They could have passed it. They, they knew the scriptures, and yet Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, and by not knowing them, they couldn't see the power of God. And they didn't know who he is. And he doesn't, they didn't know what he was about. 
It was as though they were very close to the words, yet very far from God. Jesus says you can read and study the Bible your whole entire life and still not know them or understand God. That's a little scary, isn't it? So if you're of the notion that I'll be good as long as I just spend a lot of time reading these words all the time, memorizing them, knowing how to talk about them intelligently, that might not be it. Perhaps the Bible is not the end in itself, but it's a means to a relationship with God that's much more profound. You can memorize and know all of the most interesting details and laws and correct ways of biblical living and still be far from God. What's the difference between those two? I had to think about that. Well, how, how, how do I not be like that? I think, I think the one who will never know God, the one who will never really know the Scriptures, however much he or she reads them, is the one who goes to the Bible to prove what you already believe, who goes to the Bible to have it confirm for you what you already think you know. That's the person who's not seeking God, seeking his kingdom, or desiring to change. And in that mindset, you can memorize the entire Bible and never, ever have it change you. It's the posture, as Pastor Daniel reminded us through the psalm, it's the posture of humility coming to the table and saying, God, I do not know. I submit myself to the word. I submit myself to you. Help me, would you? That's the person who will continue to know God more and more and more. So it's not just reading all the time. It's your posture. And for those of you who are entering into becoming students, pay attention to that. I'm a student as well. I'm working on my doctoral work this year, and I plan to finish it by February. I have to constantly battle that notion that if I know a bunch of stuff, I'm good to go. All right, so... Notice that these men were not seeking the truth about Jesus. They're coming to wage war with him, to debate with him, to challenge him. And he says, when he says, you don't know the scriptures, I think he's saying you don't know the content. What does he mean? Well, they have carefully talked about the text without saying all of it. They didn't mention that the, the law is if the brothers live together, then this has to happen. Okay? They left that out. They also didn't seem to care much about the fact that nobody, outside of their little hypothetical here, nobody really regarded leveret marriage as genuine marriage. As the text itself in Deuteronomy says, it was not for the purpose of, of having a happy marriage home. It was to raise up a seed. It was to help a male heir be born. So Jesus could be talking about that when he says, you don't know the content. Notice in their ignorance, they're kind of asking this question where they're like, hey, Jesus, what are the burial rules going to be in heaven, huh? You know, and it's like, that question doesn't even really apply to a place where there's no more dying. It's stupid. You're asking a stupid question. It's the same with leveret marriage. You only have leveret marriage if people die. <laughs> you only have leveret marriage if the goal is to protect and secure the name and the line and the possessions of property. But in the eternal kingdom of God, there's no need for that kind of stuff. There's no death. There's no loss of those valuable things. So they're asking a, a, a silly question, and he kind of points that out. But then in verse 25, we get to that often misread part of this passage. And we need to be very careful to hear what Jesus is not saying, okay? He says that people will not marry. He says that. 
He says that they will not be given in marriage. This can be kind of hard-hitting for us. He does not say that there will be no more marriage in the age to come. That's encouraging to me. He doesn't say there will be no marriage. He just uses the verbs. People will not marry and they will not be given in marriage. Now, why would he say it those two different ways? Well, because it's very much a male and female thing. The way that guys do marriage now is not going to happen then. And the way that women do marriage now is not going to happen like that in the kingdom. So he uses these two verbs, gamusin and gamizantai. I know, I know you're really stoked about getting into Greek right now, but here's the deal. There was no way that any old person could gamusin another. There, no, you couldn't just marry somebody. You had to be a male. So when he says there will no longer be people who marry, he's saying he's talking specifically to the way that men marry. And then, because that's only half the crowd, he uses, uh, i got to pronounce it right, gamizantai. That is the passive sense of being given in marriage. So men aren't going to do the same things they're doing now, and women are not going to be given in marriage in the same way that they are now. So rather than saying that all of the marriages that God has joined together are going to just dissolve and evaporate in heaven... He's instead saying, men, you won't be doing what you've been doing, and ladies, you're not going to be given away in marriage the way you are now in this world. That's all going to change. Jesus is showing them that their vision of heaven is misguided. And I think that if we read between the lines a little bit, he's showing them that this provision, this command from Moses was given in the context that is totally unlike heaven. I've just mentioned this. It was given in the context where the threat of death was real. That's gone in heaven. It was given in the context where the procuring of possessions and wealth and keeping them in the family and keeping them safe, that's no longer a a question or a need in heaven. In this sense, even if you don't know it, Sadducees, he's telling them, you're right. Resurrection simply cannot happen. And it will not function if it happens in the way that life functions now. So there's a little bit of a reversal. He's like, yeah, Pharisees, good point. Except here's the deal. What you believe about heaven is jacked up. It doesn't make sense. And then that's why he says you're in error. Well, here's where I could hear many of you. You might say something like, well, Ben, uh, right there in verse 25, it says that we will all become like angels. That means we will become spirit beings, right? We kind of all become gender neutral. We're going to all become spirit beings with no more maleness or femaleness or flesh or blood. We'll become angels, which is why we won't marry. That's, Jesus says that right there. And we won't have marriages because there won't be Allie won't be a female anymore, and I won't be a male. We'll just kind of become so radically different. I think that often is where we read into it with Dante and Michelangelo informing our vision. But isn't this text about life and death and resurrection? Couldn't Jesus just be saying that 
we will be like the angels in the sense of we won't die anymore. Not we will be like the angels in their essence. Okay? Notice how Luke records the same exact statement of Jesus a little bit differently. I think Luke caught that. I think he was able to see, we don't want people to get the wrong impression here, so he actually makes it clearer. And in the resurrection, this is in Luke 20, and in the resurrection from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Again, the men won't do the same thing. The women won't be given away. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. You see? Luke is saying, when we say they're, when Jesus says they're like the angels, he's simply talking about their mortality rate, which will be zero. <laughs> they're, they're not going to die anymore. He's not saying you're going to become an angel, if that makes sense. He's not saying you'll become a bloodless spirit being with no more sexuality. Nor does he seem to be saying that sex and procreation are going to end. Remember, the command to human beings who were in flesh bodies to be fruitful and multiply was given before sin entered the world, before the fall. God is interested in multiplication of his beings and his people and creating, joining him in creation. So, I'm not giving you real conclusive, here's exactly how it's going to be, but we know that it's not some of these other things we've mentioned. If you've been disheartened by this text, as I have, be encouraged this morning. I know that I can't say with absolute certainty, but I do find it very unlikely that a God who says he hates divorce and a God who instructs us to let no man tear asunder what God has joined together, I doubt that he is ultimately going to dissolve all of the marriages that he joined together. I just don't see it happening. I also don't think that that means all marriages are marriages God joined together. We've already seen that in the book of Mark. Herod married his niece. <laughs> that was a bad deal. I don't think that's one that God's going to further on in the kingdom because it's filled with sinfulness, okay? But there is this sense of that God joined together marriage. At least we know from the New Testament and the Old Testament, we don't have any, any sense that he'll dissolve those. So be encouraged this morning if that if you're like me, and that's been something that kind of bugged you. Also, if you've conceived of heaven as a place where you lose your body and you become a spirit being where you no longer can experience deep, meaningful relationships with real flesh and blood human beings, know that the Bible teaches us about a resurrection of the body. It's not just about the immortality of your soul. Jesus did not rise up as a bloodless, invisible being. Nor did he rise up as the same way that we are now. This is that profound mystery. He rises up into this life after having passed through death. And he becomes the firstborn brother of the family we belong to. And we see in him a male who still bears the scars of his brutality in, in this world. And yet he is very different. And our, our minds just kind of start to bend there. But be encouraged to know you stay a human being. You just become one who doesn't die anymore. And this is where Jesus tightens his argument and he focuses it and he brings it to a very encouraging place. Notice how he didn't point to the passages in Isaiah or Daniel or Psalms or Job to say, look, the Bible teaches resurrection. 
Why, why, did, why did he not point to any of those other texts? Because the Sadducees didn't care about those texts. They already thought they weren't legit. Jesus goes right to Torah. He takes it straight to Moses and he says, if you had read Moses, you would get this. He says, look, the patriarchs are still alive. The Bible that you say you believe in says so. And they're like, what? No, they're dead. That's just crazy. We know they're dead. And he's like, you have really got to move beyond this merely literal reading of the Bible and then thinking you're all good to go. You need to learn how to read the Bible well. Look, in that passage about the burning bush, he doesn't say Exodus 3, 6, because there was no 3 or 6. They didn't have the verses and chapters broken down like that. So Jesus does like we mostly do. We're like, in that passage about the burning bush, remember it? Yeah, yeah, we remember it. He says, what did God say at the burning bush? He said, I'm the, I'm the God of Abraham, of Jacob, of Isaac. Okay. We say, oh, yeah, he's pointing back. And he's saying, that's where God said, I am, which is the being verb, which means I currently exist as the God of them. But if you go back to Exodus 3, 6, there is no being verb there. He just simply calls himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What's he doing then? Rather than pointing to a sort of verb tense or some grammatical issue, Jesus is saying, Because God is in a relationship with these guys who regard him as their God, that is a relationship that can never be broken. This is not the God of fallen heroes. If they're dead, he can't be their God anymore because they're dead. This is the God of living beings. You ever think about it that way? You're in a loving, worship-hearted relationship toward God that creates a bond with Him, and even death itself can never break that bond. This is what Jesus is making an argument from relationship here. There's no way that this God of the Bible you say you believe in is a God who gets defeated by death whose loved ones get taken away from him because he doesn't have the power to retrieve and save them. Jesus is literally saying, how do you not see this? How do you not see the power of God? What kind? You know what it really probably is? I think the Sadducees are so puffed up in their own mind, they think of themselves as God. Oh, it's amazing. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living If this God is the God of the patriarchs and he is also the God of all of those who come after him, he does not cease to be their God when they die. When you worship God, and I mean something far more than singing songs on Sundays, when you worship God, when you want to have your life be his life, when you want to live with him and for him, when you worship God, you are with him. And people who are with God cannot be separated from God. That's what Jesus is saying. It is the fact that the relationship between God and his children and between you and me, it is the fact that this is a relationship that cannot be broken, that Jesus argues resurrection must happen. 
Notice he's not saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are uh, living in their bodies right now. This is important. There is this intermediate place where we don't quite understand it. Because they are not physically walking around as human beings in God's renewed world, that resurrection has not yet happened. I won't be able to explain to you the intermediate state. What we know is that God has protected and secured his loved ones, his Abrahams and Jacobs and Isaacs and Ruths and Esthers, okay? He's secured them. He's holding them tight. And when the resurrection time comes, they'll all be raised up like you and me into new life with resurrected bodies. He's not just accusing the Sadducee opponents of bad Bible reading, but also of a failure of nerve, an unwillingness to believe in a God whose life is more powerful than death. They had a desire to stay proper to their own little group, to uphold their own little fantasies about what they believed the Bible teaches, a desire to themselves be the ultimate power and authority. If what Jesus was saying was true, then it would mean they would have to change everything about their lives. And rather than changing, they wanted to get Jesus out of the picture, didn't they? And that's how the story will unfold. As the psalmist said, I, God, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me under your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory. That's in Psalm 73. That's one of those vague pictures of resurrection. The relationship with God cannot be broken. He is continually with you. Isn't that Emmanuel, God with us? In a word, writes William Barclay, there is only one immortal thing, and that is love. Are you not in error, Jesus first asked. And then he says, you are in error to these Sadducees. So men and women, my friends in Jesus, do we actually believe in the resurrection? This is not a simple resuscitation like Jairus' daughter or Lazarus. It's not a restart for the same kind of existence we've grown accustomed to. It means going through pain and death through it into the next age, into a deathless world. When I think about my health and my money and my time, do I spend it all to keep on the tip top? Am I thinking in terms of God's promise of resurrection? Or am I thinking about how to live in terms of potential pain and loss? Do I spend my time securing my family line, hoping it will continue, worried that if it doesn't, I might lose something major, protecting my family's resources, my reputation, my legacy. Is that a major focal point of my mind? I would suggest to you that if it is, resurrection has not really entered into your psyche very much. You're still living in the ways of the world. Do I really believe in resurrection? Do I spend my life on things that have eternal value to those around me? Or do I work the world systems as best as I can to get what I want? Because really deep down, I actually do believe that life is short. That if I don't have the experiences I really think I need, then when I die, it'll all be over. My bucket list. What's a bucket list? A bucket list is rooted in the fear of death. 
If I don't get this stuff done, by golly, I'll miss something big. So we pursue our own experiences over the eternal relationships with God and His people. He is continuously with you. He holds your hand. He guides you with His counsel. And afterward, He will receive you into His glory. This is a bond that God has with you that death cannot break. It is a grace. It is a gift of life and love for you. And grace keeps us together. It keeps people together with each other and with God. I'll close now with the words of St. Augustine. He's commenting on this text. Augustine writes, The Sadducees do not have our hope for the resurrection since they know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God who is able to restore what is lost, to raise what is dead back to life, to revive what has rotted away, and to gather together what is corruptible and finite. The Lord has promised to do this, and He gives us as a guarantee the promises He has already fulfilled. So, and I encourage you with this last line, let your faith speak of this to you, since your hope will not be disappointed, even though your love may be put to the test. Pray with me. Father, our love is put to the test every day, every week. Stress and the brutality of this world bring us to a place where we are battered and bruised. In some ways, we, we feel as we grow older, even like our bodies are starting to rot away. They become broken and we become fearful. Would you, through your spirit this morning, revive in us a hope for resurrection life? And a living hope, not a hope that it may or may not happen, but a living hope, as the Apostle Peter says, one that just drives us. We know you will give us eternal life, where we don't see this as our last shot to do good things or to enjoy the most amazing parts of life, but we truly see these as the first hundred years or so in a life that never ends. Help us to be men and women of the resurrection. Help us to be your people who live your life, which never ends. Amen.